Father, we're so thankful that we hold in our hands the true guide to life, to hope, to eternity. We're thankful that you are the one who leads us through that guidebook, who teaches us, who instructs us, who causes us to want to obey. Lord, forgive us where we do deviate and where our ears grow dull and our eyes are dim. Pray, Father, that we will be renewed in the spirit day by day, even as Isaiah reports that we should mount up with eagles and run and not be weary. And we know that that can only happen as our eyes are fixed on you and our minds are set on your word. So God bless each one who is here this morning. Thank you for each life and trust for your touch, for your strength, and ask that you will show us your truth as we study your passage, this passage this morning. And Lord, throughout the Sunday School, as many are teaching, again, many from this class have gone to, on to teach in other uh, classes. We pray your blessing upon them specifically this morning. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. I'd like to read beginning verse 8 through verse 14. Exodus 8. Now a new king or Pharaoh, arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the, in the event of war they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. I'm sorry you don't have another outline in front of you this morning. We're just right at the bottom of the page you handed out, but it's been an extremely busy time these past several weeks, and so hopefully I'll get one out uh, this week. I'm teaching an evening class, and it comes to an end this Wednesday, so hopefully I'll be able to uh, uh, work on that. But uh, last week I did make a note of the fact that, as far as we can tell, it's very probable that the Pharaoh who did not know Moses, uh, did not know Joseph, was Amos, A-H-M-O-S-E, who was the first Pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. This was a new dynasty that came to power at the termination of the period of the Hyksos. His brother was the primary instigator of ridding the land of the Hyksos, and then when his brother died, he himself followed through in destroying the power of these alien rulers of Egypt. In verse 9, we discover that this Pharaoh becomes very concerned about the fact that the Israelites have spread broadly throughout the delta. Again, as I mentioned to you, I believe it was last week or the week before, the area of the delta in total exceeds the area of all of the rest of Egypt in the Nile Valley itself. Once you get outside of the Nile Valley, you might as well forget the rest of Egypt. It doesn't matter. It's all desert, and few people live in the rest of Egypt, Egypt except in a few oases here and there. 
So it was a very important area to be so heavily populated by a people who were non-Egyptian. So Pharaoh was obviously very, very concerned about that. His primary concern, as we see from this passage, was that they might become an enemy within, a kind of a fifth column, if you will, that they themselves might rise up and take power or, more likely, that they would aid an invader, particularly if the Hyksos were to attempt to return. And so, to eliminate or reduce this perceived threat, and at the same time harness this manpower for something useful as far as the Egyptians were concerned, uh, they were put to work building what are called storage cities here, Python and Ramses. I think that uh, they show on your map that I gave to you a couple of weeks ago. I don't have a copy of it here with me this morning, but you probably, I think the name Ramses is on there, and Pythom is the same as Succoth, S-U-C-C-O-T-H, which is over uh, to the far eastern side of Egypt over there. Uh, they kind of bracket the pathway into Egypt from the northeast. And so they were storage cities in the sense that they were arsenals, uh, places where military weapons could be stored for the use in defense against invaders. They are fortified or were fortified cities that would help guard the border, particularly to the northeast, because the only direction from which Egyptians had to worry about invaders, the only two directions, were from the northeast and from the south. They never had to worry about invaders from the east or from the west, because to the east and to the west were vast deserts. But to the northeast, there was that connector across the northern Sinai up into western Asia, and of course from the south would come at various times invaders out of what was known as Nubia uh, in ancient times or Cush, uh, even ultimately from Ethiopia. And there were times when there were Nubian rulers over Egypt, in fact. Uh, so putting these two great uh, cities there would help to guard that border, not only against a possible return uh, by the Hyksos, but against three other great powers that had arisen in Western Asia at that time. Up in the north, in what we today call Turkey, was the, the uh, empire of the Hittites. The Hittites were an early iron-using people who established a large empire up in, in Turkey. They were an Indo-European people. They were not a Semitic people. Then in Mesopotamia itself, to the far north, where the, where the uh, Fertile Crescent makes the curve over from me, uh, from Mesopotamia over to the coast was a, re, uh, a region that was dominated by people known as the Hurrians, another Indo-European speaking people. And then further to the southeast, Babylon at that time was ruled by a Semitic people known as the Kassites. And all three of those were a possible threat to Egypt. So the fortified cities would serve as protection against all of these Western Asians. Now, the hope <laughs> the hope that putting these Israelites to hard labor would reduce their growth or slow their growth was very ill-founded. Because you remember as we read in verse 3, but, I mean verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. The more they put it to them, the more numerous they became. That to us is obviously the hand of God. Because you look down through the course of history and you discover that wherever a, a people group has been heavily oppressed uh, 
and put to hard labor, they generally do uh, tend to decline in numbers for many reasons, one of which, of course, is psychological. But other reasons include the, the total exhaustion of the people involved and the inability, inability to procreate at the, at the level achieved before. But in this case, they, they multiply even faster, which indicates that God is at work. God's plan is being carried out. The Egyptians were fearful that they might become a minority in their own land, that the Israelites might actually outnumber them. And probably in major parts of the delta, they did outnumber them. And so Pharaoh was trying to discover a way by which this could be reversed. In verse 13, we, re we read that the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. Now the word translated rigorously in the Hebrew means with harshness, with severity. And that seems to be illustrated in terms of its impact in verse 14, where we read that they made their lives bitter with hard labor. Bitter. Were made bitter with hard labor. Now put yourself in the place of these Hebrews, if you can, and try to think what would be your reaction. You don't have a Bible, you don't have a pastor, you don't have a prophet. All you have is the father to son, mother to daughter record of God's uh, word, uh, word which he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph. And, and what God did through Joseph when they were early on in the land, that, that's what they had. It certainly would become a time when many would feel as if God had abandoned them. Where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? I mean, is this the way we're supposed to live? Is this the kind of horrible existence we were meant for? And certainly there might have been the tendency for many to, to become hopeless. And you know, once we become hopeless, then life becomes a real drudgery. And certainly that's the way it was for many of these. But it's interesting to note as you read through this passage and we read the events which follow, they're not broken. The people are not broken by this. And that's really quite important. Instead, they seem to be hardened. I don't mean hardened against God, but, but hardened in their emotional desire to get out of Egypt and physically hardened so that they can get out of Egypt. The Bible record, and we've seen this in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, specifically in Joseph, and as you read through the Bible, you see this in the lives of many others. You see it in the life of, uh, of Moses. You see it in the life of David. You see it, of course, in the life of Jesus himself. It seems that the Bible emphasizes that God often brings extraordinary difficulty into the lives of those through whom he intends to accomplish great things. It seems like we have to, as we would use it today, as the phrase we might use today, we have to go through the mill before we're ready to be God's instrument of blessing, to be used by God to touch other lives. And of course, as we started through the book of Genesis, we saw that in several instances. Uh, obviously, it's much easier for someone who has been through a hard time to minister to someone else who's going through a hard time. It's very difficult 
if life's been a breeze for us to minister to someone who's having a hard time because we have no basis from which to minister uh, to them, at least that would make us seem credible to that person. I think if life had been physically and emotionally very satisfactory to the Israelites, Moses wouldn't have been able to move them one inch towards the Sinai wilderness. Could you imagine? I mean, even when they got to Sinai wilderness, they griped and they complained and they wanted to go back because at least they had garlics and leeks and fish and, and things to eat. They didn't have to eat this old manna, you know, which God freely gave them every day. You know, they felt that way after having gone through all of this difficulty. You can imagine what it would have been like had they been through no difficulty at all. <laughs> they wouldn't have moved. Why should we leave here to go out there in the desert? And if they hadn't gone out in the desert, they wouldn't have been prepared to receive God's word, which he gave on Mount Sinai. It seems that the word of God sometimes comes through most loudly and most clearly in what we would call the deserts of life. When, when times are hard, when we seem kind of dried up in many ways, and, and then it seems we're prepared and we can hear. And uh, God sends his word like a refreshing rain. Verse, 20, uh, verse 15, Exodus 1:15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Pharaoh's frustrated. His, his plan of action is not working. He's trying to crush these people with, with hard labor, with all these taskmasters, and they keep multiplying. And so he takes what we, I think we could clearly say is a diabolical step, and he orders the implementation of infanticide, the destruction of the infant boys as soon as they are born to the Israelite women. Two women are mentioned in this passage, and they're named specifically, Shifra and Puah. Now, as I've already noted, the nation of Israel by this time has spread all across the Egyptian delta. It numbers in the hundreds of thousands, probably by the time we're talking about now, which is almost the moment at least when Moses will be born, we're talking about a population that was close to two million. There's no way two women were going to be midwives to two million people. So what we're talking about here are head midwives, the ones who were responsible probably for training all of the Hebrew midwives, kind of like, you know, the, the, the chief doctors of the land, if you will, of uh, obstetrics. And so he calls these two in. He can't call them all in, of course, from all over the land. And so he calls these two in, and he wants them to give instructions to all of the midwives throughout the Hebrew land 
that they were to kill the male babies at the very moment they were delivered. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to hear? For people who are accustomed to to bringing life into the world and, and encouraging life and doing everything they can to save life, to be ordered to murder the baby as soon as, as it is born, as soon as he is born. The implication, although it's not specifically said, the implication is, of course, that they were to do it surreptitiously. That uh, they were to kill the baby right when it's born, before the mother is through her, her pain and distress and can really clearly think what's going on, and so that the mother will think that the child was either stillborn or that there was some complication in the birth and therefore the baby died. And that there would be no you know, real concern about this. Of course, it wouldn't take very long, I don't think, for the Hebrew women to suddenly discover that uh, why is it that the daughters are surviving and, and the boys are not surviving? You know, it, it wouldn't take long for that to be figured out. But of course, that didn't happen anyway. It's obvious from this passage that there were Hebrews who believed in God. Because in verse 17 it says, the midwives feared God. I don't think, and it's obvious from what happens here, they didn't fear God in a purely metaphysical way, like I can stand here and say, boy, I really fear God. If that doesn't manifest itself in the way I live my life, then that fear is meaningless, really. It's kind of like philosophers arguing back and forth about their philosophies, but having the philosophy mean nothing in their lives. It's a, it's a waste of time, a waste of effort. Their fear of God produced in them righteous action. Most of us, I think, are familiar with Solomon's instructions in the Proverbs, where he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that ought to be carved on the front of every university of America. <laughs> but I'm afraid that it won't be. What did he mean by that? Well, as you know, if you've read through the Proverbs, there is... Uh, statement after statement of what it means to be a righteous person and how to live a righteous life. Well, the empowerment for that righteous action is the fear of the Lord. And the genuineness of the fear of the Lord is that righteous action. And so the two are interwoven together. And so as Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, rever uh, of wisdom, he is saying that that is based on the reverence of God. If we don't reverence God, we won't have righteous action in our lives. Thus the Hebrew midwives feared God, and this caused them to disobey Pharaoh. Now this can create a complication in some people's thinking. How, how can this be? Weren't they to obey those in authority over them? Isn't that biblical teaching? Paul has told us to be in subjection to governing authorities. Peter instructs us, submit yourselves for the sake of the Lord to every human institution. So how could God honor this disobedience? This, this disobedience to the Pharaoh. Well, of course, you and I are well aware of that it's possible for government leaders to make laws that are contrary to the ultimate laws of God. We've had a few of them passed in the history of our country from time to time. 
I think most of us are aware of the fact that the United States Constitution is considered to be the supreme law of the land. Which means, in theory, that every other law passed in this land must be in subjection or at least in congruence with the Constitution of the United States. No law can be passed by Congress, by a state legislature, by a city council that runs contrary to the United States Constitution. But if we apply that in the spiritual realm, and of course we all know the, Con the United States Constitution is not an infallible document, but if we take that into the spiritual realm for all Christians, we know that no law should be written or obeyed that is contrary to the constitution of the universe, which is the law of God. And so if a human law violates the supreme law, then that human law is invalid. Laws that violate God's word are not to be obeyed by God's people. When Peter says, submit yourselves for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, that is not a blanket statement with no exceptions. He is talking about institutions and laws that are congruent with the law of God. Well, Pharaoh called in the midwives. We don't know how much time passed, probably several months. And as the months passed, the babies continued to, to be there and to multiply. And by the way, I think that as we study through these first chapters of the book of Exodus, it becomes quite clear that the law never was effectively enforced. Because when Moses ultimately, 80 years later, uh, leads Israel out of Egypt, we're told that the men of military strength alone were 600,000 in number. And we have to realize that that was basically men between 20 and 60 all of whom would be younger than Moses. Therefore, the law was never implemented. I mean, it was put on the books, but it is obviously not carried out, and God didn't allow it to be carried out. I'm not saying in no instance was a, was a baby Hebrew boy destroyed, the Scripture doesn't say. But the obvious growth of the, of the male population indicated that it wasn't working. So Pharaoh said to the ladies, Come in, come before me to answer for your failure. And in their defense, the midwives said what is best, a partial truth, at very best. Undoubtedly, because of God's blessing, the Hebrew women were more vigorous and probably had greater facility in childbirth. But that couldn't explain the total failure to not even destroy one male child. It's very probable they purposely showed up too late. Baby's already born. <laughs> Goofed again, you know. But, you know, you can imagine what was really going on. <laughs> Midwife went to the family and said, okay, now, when the baby's born, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, to various family members, and then I'll get along here when I can, you know. And so the baby's born. Oh, <laughs> missed it again. Not a shame. But, in part, their answer was a flat-out, quote, lie in Pharaoh's eyes. He wouldn't know that, but they simply were not doing what he commanded them to do. And they didn't say, we aren't going to do it. They just said, well, you know, <laughs> they're vigorous, and, and by the time we get there, the baby's already born. One of the classic commentators uh, on, from the 19th century on the Pentateuch is Delich. And he quotes a passage from Augustine, the famous 
saint who lived at the end of the fourth, early part of the fifth century, uh, one of the great saints of the church, who said, uh, for the sake of what was good, God forgave what was evil. For the sake of what was good, God forgave what was evil. The question I think that needs to be asked and needed to be asked by Augustine was, was their answer truly a lie? Certainly the Bible condemns lying, but the question is, what is lying? In the ultimate sense, what is lying? Compare it to this. On Mount Sinai, later on, God would say to Moses as he gave the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And then within a few years, God sends the nation of Israel into Canaan and he says, kill every man, woman, and child of the Canaanite people. Now as we look at that, we have to say either God is mixed up, schizophrenic, hypocritical, has a double standard or something here. But what we, what we have to come to realize is that what God is speaking of is deeper truths than just shallow you know, kind of mindless obedience to what we think the commandments might be. And that's really where the root of living as a Christian comes altogether. There are many who criticize Christianity as nothing but a list of do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts. Don't do this, you know, don't go to the show and don't dance and don't eat fish on, I mean, meat on Friday or whatever, you know. Uh, this big long list of things that Christians don't do. But, but a true Christian, through studying the Word of God, comes to a place of becoming truly a member of God's family so that he or she thinks as God thinks and is motivated by God's heart and not by a list of do's and don'ts. The key is the motive of the heart. God is not schizophrenic. There is no double standard at all when you understand the heart of God. The problem was faced by a lady that you all heard of whose name was Corrie Ten Boom. She had to deal with this problem. Was it morally or biblically wrong to lie to the Nazis and to deny she knew anything about the very Jews whom she was hiding in her own house? Is that a lie to say to a Nazi Gestapo uh, authority? Don't know anything about them, never seen them, never heard of them. Whereas, at the, all the same time, you've got them hidden in the back of your house and you know exactly who they are and where they are? Is that a lie? Well, this is the question. And, and there have been various individuals who have condemned that kind of action. You're supposed to just say, yeah, they're up there. Go take them and kill them. Is that what God would have us to do? It's a real difficult thing to deal with. I think it's very important that we be careful to never advocate situation ethics, that we just do whatever seems to be the right thing to do according to the way the situation has developed, you know, whether, whether I feel good about it or not. It's, I think, very important that we recognize that we cannot be arbiters of what is right and wrong according to our own desires. What defines rightness and wrongness is the character of God himself. And that character is displayed here. It's displayed in the lives of God's people as they've lived and their lives have been recorded. And as we study this book, we come to know the character of God. And we know what's right and we know what's wrong. Not because we just mindlessly obey a list, but because we know what God would do. What would Jesus do in this particular 
situation. And that's what Corey Ten Boom had to do in that particular situation. And that's what these ladies had to do. They didn't, quote, lie to save their own necks, but to frustrate uh, the Pharaoh's evil plan. Is it possible to lie to the devil? Is it possible to lie to someone who's driven by a demonic spirit? If what they want to do is, is patently vile and evil, and you're defending what is right and good, I think God makes it clear in this passage what was right. Because in verse 20, 20 we read, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God, he established their households for them. God does not bless evil. God blessed them. Thus, what they did was not evil. It was not wrong. But this, of course, was an extreme situation. And we have to understand that uh, that doesn't mean that we have the right to, whenever we feel uncomfortable in a situation, to tell a lie. Obviously not. Because that's not the heart of God. That's not the character of God. God's character is to redeem, not to destroy. Pharaoh wanted to destroy. We have to also realize these are human beings we're dealing with. And uh, not perfect in any sense either. Could God have done it some other way? Sure. What if they had a flat out said, we're not going to do it. <laughs> what was the worst Pharaoh could have done? Killed them, but what would he have then done? Appointed probably Egyptians to be responsible for going out and being, quote, midwives. So what they did, it's sort of like, in some ways, very, very loosely related <laughs> to uh, the creation of Vichy France in World War II. When the Nazis came and overran two-thirds of France, there was a government established at Vichy, which was a, quote, puppet government of the Nazis, but part of, of the function of that was to serve as an umbrella of protection to prevent the occupying forces from actually occupying that part of France. You know, I'm not saying whether that's morally good or bad, but, or, or whether this was right or anything else. But there is a little bit of this idea in here. Well, since Pharaoh couldn't get the Israeli midwives to cooperate, he sent out a universal order to the Egyptians to search out and destroy all the male children, all the male babies in Egypt. Do you think that all the Egyptians said, yeah, what we've been waiting for. Let's go do it. I think many Egyptians thought it was a ghastly order. No, even pagans often have a sense of, of some morality. And th they felt this was probably a horrible law to be passed. And so it fell upon the local authorities to try to carry out Pharaoh's directive with, with local soldiers or local thugs maybe or bounty hunters maybe to try to get them to go out and carry out the orders of the Pharaoh. And of course the idea of taking a baby and tossing that baby into the Nile probably carried with it some religious overtones. A sacrifice to the God of the Nile. Throw this baby in and the God of the Nile will be pleased. Didn't work. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. 
But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. Jacob's, J Jacob had a son by the name of Levi. And that son had three sons whose names were Kohath, Gershom, and Merari. One of Kohath's descendants is the man that this passage mentions. His name, we discover later, was Amram. And do you know that Amram married his aunt? Exodus 6, verse 20. And Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. His father's sister. Probably much younger sister, obviously. He was probably the firstborn of his father, and, and uh, his father's parents had kids on down the line, and I don't think there was a great age difference between the two. Now, when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave a long list of what Israelis were to do and not to do, far beyond the Ten Commandments. He went into full explanation of how they were to live their lives. And in the book of Leviticus, if you read through that carefully, you'll discover that the very relationship referred to here is prohibited. God will tell Moses that a man shall not marry his father's sister. It's considered to be an incestuous relationship. But it wasn't at this time, because there was no such law. It had not been proclaimed. Now, why is such a law later proclaimed? Is there something ultimately universally immoral about marrying your father's sister? I don't think so. I think the immorality comes because God has invoked it to prevent close reproduction. Because as we know, incestuous relationships tend to produce children whose uh, the, the bad genes are reinforced and, and so you end up with people who are genetically diminished as a result. And this is, you can look through the histories of many royal lines. In fact, that was one of the problems with ancient Egypt. It was very common for a pharaoh to marry his full-blooded sister. And as a result, they had a lot of uh, children who were not fully well, a lot of words you could use here, but anyway, often were mentally diminished and other ways uh, physically abnormal. And uh, God knew that as the human race continued to propagate itself, the worse the genetic pool would become. And therefore, the more important it became for a procreation to occur as uh, unattached to the family as possible. Again, this goes back to a concept I think that we can derive from Genesis. And that is, Adam and Eve were perfect. And there was no way by which Adam and Eve's children could not marry full-blooded brother and sister. So that's all there were. And so they had to do that. And, and as time passed, however, the problem of sin manifested itself more fully. 
I don't think that a moment Adam and Eve sinned and fell in the garden that all of the evil was instantly there in the sense of all of the physical diminishing impact would be. After all, they lived almost a thousand years. Uh, so obviously, the uh, long life, life would terminate, but a long life was still there. And so as centuries have passed, as the centuries have gone, as the millennia have flowed past, the impact of evil has gotten greater and greater and greater. And that's why I think today that you and I only have a, a small portion of the intellectual capacity that Adam and Eve had, or even that Cain and Abel or Seth had, that their ability to, to use their minds was far greater than even an Einstein today. And the only reason we're more advanced technologically is there's just a whole lot more minds at work here. There's 5.7 billion of them today at work trying to, you know, generate technological change today, building on, on past billions, whereas I think, as, as some have argued, Adam and Eve during their lifetime went through the Stone Age and into the Iron Age all in one lifetime. And who knows what all they actually developed during their lifetime. Because we know, reading early in Genesis, that cities and musical instruments and other things were already invented within a couple of generations of Adam and Eve. Not after a, a billion, I mean a million years or hundreds of thousands of years of people running around grunting and dragging their knuckles on the ground and bopping each over the head with a club. We have a devolution of the human race, not an evolution. We start perfectly, and we've been spiraling down ever since. It's not the other way around, you know. And so, although this later would be proclaimed something not to be done to protect progeny, it was not anything that was either illegal or immoral at the time Amram married Jochebed. Certainly to those who knew this couple, neither the family nor the birth of this baby was unusual. This was the third child. They already had two other children. They had Miriam and they had Aaron already. So what is the point of all this? What's the big deal about a third child being born? Well, it's not even the point of his being born. It's the point of his miraculous preservation. Because God had a plan to use this man as a savior of his people and in that sense as a type of Christ, the man Moses. Scripture says here, when Jochebed gazed upon her son, she became aware, aware of the fact that he was beautiful. Now, what mother <laughs> hasn't thought that? <laughs> Isn't this the most beautiful child that has ever been born? You know, virtually every mother, every mother feels that, that way about her son or her daughter. The word translated beautiful here, though, is not the word generally used to describe physical beauty. You know, when, when, later, when earlier on it was said that, that, you know, talking about Sarah and then Rebecca and then Rachel, that they were beautiful of form and face. It's a different word there than, than the word that is used here in Hebrew. Uh, this is the word that is usually translated as good, not as beautiful, but as good. And in this sense here, seems to be best translated as noble. She saw in her son a nobility. This son will grow up to be someone 
significant in the eyes of God. Now, how could she possibly know that? You know, almost every woman could say, son, you're going to be president of the United States someday. And that's a hope. But she somehow saw in this son, certainly by eyes given to her by God, that he was of noble character. And what this did was intensify her desire to be sure she preserved this child and protected him from Pharaoh's agents of destruction. Now, Jochebed succeeded in hiding Moses for three months. Every time he started to whimper and there was any chance of uh, uh, his being heard, why, she knew what to do. Although she apparently trusted God, we have to remember she was human. And certainly during those three months, there was this nagging fear that they might burst in at any moment and take her boy from her. Because we trust in God does not mean that fear never knocks at our door. Hopefully, because of our faith, we're not eaten alive by fear and we're not driven by fear. But if every once in a while we get that little twinge of fear in the midst of something, that doesn't mean we've, that God's left us or suddenly we're not Christians anymore. It just means that we're human and we need to renew our, our prayer and our trust in God. And so, when Moses became too strong, his cry became too strong for it to be muffled, she knew she had to do something else. Now, I don't know, you know, we've, we've been taught this story. If, if you've been a part of the church for much of your life, you've been taught this story so long that you probably say, oh, you know, Moses in the bulrushes. We all know the story, you know, big deal. But if you ever think about the fact how audacious this plan was, stick your kid out in the river in a basket, I think most of us would try to think of some other plan. It had to come from God. Notice, ever notice how audacious sometimes God's plans are? I mean, the whole plan of salvation is, is, is just mind-blowing. I mean, that's what makes it so believable. It couldn't have been thought up by a human being. Obvious, case in point, all the other religions of the world, none of which have such a story. So, she wove a basket of papyrus reeds. Now, papyrus is a native plant to Egypt. It grows, it, it's, a, it's a water plant that grew all along the banks of the Nile, up and down the Nile River. And, and papyrus grows, sometimes when it's fully developed, it'll grow 15 feet high. And you know, it's, it has a big stalk on it. It's triangular in shape. Stalk looks something like that. And of course, it's small to large, depending on the age of the plant. And uh, so she took and, and cut probably relatively green and young papyrus reeds and wove them into a basket, and then she pitched it, or put tar, bitumen actually, on it there to, uh, to uh, make it watertight, not so that it would float, because papyrus naturally will float, but so the baby wouldn't get all wet, obviously, inside the, the little basket. And then she placed the basket among the papyrus reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now the papyrus reed was used by the ancient Egyptians uh, to make a kind of paper out of. Uh, they, they went through a long process of stripping this stuff and putting it this way and then putting, gluing it this way and gluing it this way and gluing it this way and smoothing it off with a special stone until they ultimately had uh, a form of what we would call paper. In fact, the word paper comes from papyrus. 
And this was used for the ancient scrolls by the, by the ancient Egyptians. And so it was a, a prolific plant there along the Nile. And so she made a, a little, well, the King James calls it an ark, a little basket, really, and, and put it in amongst the very reeds of which it was made. Now, where did this happen? Well, we know it happened along the Nile. But where along the Nile? There's no way of telling from Scripture. It could have been close to Memphis. More likely, though, it was out in the delta somewhere. And one of the royal cities at that time was Tanis, or Zone, as it would sometimes be called, which was over in the eastern part of the delta. And it's more likely that this was the city because that's where the Israelis were more prolific, uh, that, or more abundant. <laughs> they were prolific everywhere, but more abundant right there. And, and certainly, it's very possible that it was near that particular city that this event took place. Now, some have had the idea that Moses was put in the basket and she just kind of shoved it out into the river and said, oh God, take care of my little boy. Kind of an Romulus and Remus thing, you know, hoping that everything will turn out all right. Uh -uh, that's not what happened at all. And I think that's clear from, from the passage. She selected the site. She knew exactly where to put that basket. And this is attested to by the fact that her daughter stood there to watch the basket to see what would happen to it. Obviously, she expected something to happen to it. She knew exactly where she was putting it. She had selected the site. And the timing was perfect so he wouldn't be sitting out there for all day and all night. You know, Nile River is full of crocodiles. So uh, you think about this. Could Moses possibly be safer in a basket out in the river than at home? If he cried, either way. Not likely. So this was not a hope-so thing. She had a plan in mind. And where'd she get that plan? From God himself. God himself. She probably didn't know it. She probably didn't say, oh, Lord, give me a plan. And all of a sudden, you know, light bulb goes on. Oh, yeah, great plan, Lord. No, this plan came to her. And she may not even have known it came from God. But we can know it came from God. And that's the way God often speaks to us. It's not always with a zap or a bolt out of the blue. Most often it's from the word of, of God itself, where God will tell us something. But often he will speak to us in other situations too. And we may not even know it. But if we're walking with him, we can usually test it to find out if it's from him. Well, I think she knew the spot where Pharaoh's daughter frequently walked and frequently bathed. And she may have heard that Pharaoh's daughter had shown at some point of time a little compassion towards a Hebrew child, or simply that this woman was a, a kind of a kind and compassionate person. And so she put the ark out there where this would be found. Now, who is this woman? Who is this daughter of Pharaoh? Scripture does not tell us. And there's no way for us to go back and study Egyptian history to be sure but the early church historian Eusebius, who lived, who, well, who wrote a history of the church about 325, uh, tells us that the Egyptians had a long, uh, no, not the Egyptians, that the, that the Jews had a long-standing tradition that the name of this woman was Maris, M-E-R-R-I-S. However, Josephus, who lived three centuries before Eusebius, said her name was Thermutus. God knows she was God's agent of blessing in this situation.
I think because of the time, we'll leave Moses sitting out there in the bulrushes. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll look and see how this worked out and, and what God was at work doing here.